Well, uh, the human race, there's a lot of things about us that I always find interesting. Anytime I get to look at sociology or psychology, I always think it's fascinating. But one of the things that I find that human beings love, especially in our culture, is we love mystery, right? I mean, we are just fascinated by mystery, so much so that it invades almost all of our extracurricular interests, right? So whether it be books or movies or television or movies or games the web, whatever, we love this idea of things having mystery. And there's a lot of different variations of the types of mysteries that we enjoy. For some of us, you like suspense or intrigue, right? You like the whodunit mysteries. My mother-in-law is a whodunit mystery buff. She loves the whodunits. And there's some of you that are very much like that. Others, you're into the problem-solving investigation type mysteries, right? So you like research or observation or scientific method. If you like the Discovery Channel or things like that, you go, yeah, I mean, the mysteries of the universe and how the human body functions and things like that, that's your kind of mystery. Others really like mysteries of an unexplainable nature, right? So maybe it's extraterrestrial or maybe it's supernatural. You love those mysteries. That's my daughter, Emma. She loves that kind of mystery. And so all of those are those types where we go, man, we we, we can't quite figure it out. We don't know the full story. We're kind of coming to conclusion to see the mystery resolved, if it can be resolved, right? Those are certain types of mysteries. But there's another variation of mystery, and this is just what I call the dumbfounded mystery, where you you hear it and, and, and you get it, but you're just sort of dumbfounded even after you get the mystery. So it's those things where you go, man, I, I, I understand, but, but I'm still so surprised. I, I can't fully wrap my mind around it, though I affirm it. For example, I go, NASCAR is the most popular sport. I'm dumbfounded by that. It, I mean, I get it, but I don't get it, right? I, it's a dumbfounded mystery for me. Or, or maybe some of you, it's, it's that whole thing where you go, man, how did I even miss that? I mean, it was right in front of me the whole time. You know, like that situation where you're frantically all around your house looking for the keys to your car. And then somebody says, well, did you check your pockets? And you're like, of course I checked. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, like, it was always there. Or this one, where's my glasses? Has anybody seen my glasses? I need to find my glasses, right? That's another one of those, like, it's a dumbfounded mystery. It was always right in front of you. Or maybe it's, again, just that I understand, but I don't understand how. I don't understand why, right? It's like going, Survivor's still on television? How? <laughs> you know? Why is that happening, right? All of those are mysteries, right? All of life has mysteries and layers and layers of mysteries. In the Bible... There are tons of mysteries, of all of those variations, right? Some of the mysteries are supernatural. Some of the mysteries are just yet to be fully disclosed. Some of the mysteries are those kind where we go, it's a whodunit, and I don't understand, and where's it going? There are all those types of mysteries. But today, we're looking at that last kind I described. Those mysteries where we say, all right, I see the content I understand it enough to know what it's saying, but I'm still dumbfounded. In that sense, it's still a mystery. And I think there is no greater dumbfounding mystery than the gospel of grace. There is nothing that should cause us to scratch our head and say, I get it, but I don't get it. I understand it, but I don't understand why or how. I mean, that should be the instance or the essence 
of gospel grace. Just dumbfounding. So, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Now, on the screen, on the slides, it's going to say Ephesians 4. That's a typo, my error. Sorry about that. Uh, so make sure you just make, keep in mind that it's chapter 3. Uh, that we're going to be looking at, and we're going to be starting in verse 1 this morning. Now, as you are on your way there, I want to kind of keep the context before us, right? Where we've come from so we understand where we're going to. And in chapter 2, Paul has been uh, celebrating and, and making much of the reality of the church. And what he's saying about the church and about the gospel and how Jesus stepped into the world is that when he stepped in and he brought the gospel, he accomplished something that was just flat-out radical. And that is that he took all sorts of different people with their sins and their biases and their bigotry and their seduction and their selfishness, and through grace, through compelling grace, not through might or strength or war or force, but through compelling grace, he said, I'm going to take all of these different people and I'm going to make them one church. I'm going to make them this one entity. All the walls of separation are coming down. And not only is it going to come down and I make one church, but that church is so powerful, so potent, so changed by me that I will literally become uh, one who dwells in them. Church will become a sacred gathering. That the church becomes the dwelling place of God Almighty. It's all of this that Paul has said. And so that's what we said last week. That you know what? There are no longer sacred buildings. There are no sacred temples. If you walk into a church and you say, this is a sacred space. No, it's not. It's a building. It's a building. And if it sits long enough, somebody will convert that to a home or something else. If that church loses the more important thing, which is the presence of God. Right? The space doesn't matter. It's the people who make the space sacred. In other words, it's sacred gathering, not sacred space. So Paul has been sharing all of that. Man, God's done this and God's done that, and it's all through the gospel, and it changes the least into the greatest. And, oh, man, it's just, he's all overwhelmed by this. And so because of all of that, it drives him to pray. Right? And that's really where chapter 3 is going. It's going to this place where Paul begins to pray. And this is how it starts in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. That's where chapter 3 is going. Now, here's a problem for those of you with the Bible in your lap. You went, Matt, just jump something. Now, for those of you looking on the screen, you might notice a little bit that there's something kind of being bolted together, right? There's a reason for that. See, Paul goes into chapter 3 to pray, and when he goes into verse 1, he's, he's going, he's, just, he's, he's winding up, man. It's like, here's the pitch. I want to do this. And then just as he gets ready to throw, he balks, and he goes, I got something else to talk about real quick, though. That's what he does, right? So, so let, me, let me look at Verse 1 and 2. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, I'm getting ready to pray. Oh, wait, assuming, wait, stop, that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Da, da, da. Right? So he changes his subject completely. Right? And, and, and that's an interesting deal. It's like this sidebar, right, from verse 2 to verse 13. Right? So he starts to pray, busts away, does this whole other thing, and then he's going to return to the prayer in verse 14. The question is why? 
right? Is this just Paul saying, you know what, I've got some extra paper. Ah, I meant to throw that in, I'll throw it in here. Or is there something more profound? I, I, I really believe that it is, it is something of probably the most profound nature, which is he's getting ready to pray, but he is so emotionally overwhelmed at this juncture. He's so stunned by his recollection of everything that he literally has to stop and like tell personal testimony. Like, so like, if you go through chapter 1 to chapter 2, he's like, oh man, God is blessed, and God's adopted, and God's redeemed, and God's forgiven, and I pray that you know that, and God has saved us by His grace, even when we're sinful, and He made us one, and we become the dwelling place of God, I want to pray, but wait, i got to tell you more about my life. i got to tell you more about this amazing gospel that changes everything, and how it just blows my mind and floods my emotions, and I don't even know how to fully reveal all of this. See, that's the heart and spirit behind Paul in this section. So much so that he's just going to kind of be spilling out ideas. They don't even always fully lock together in a convenient way. In fact, when originally I, I, I felt led to preach Ephesians, I looked at the section, I'm like, oh man, I don't even know what I'm going to do with this. I mean, this is like Pauline shotgun blast. There's pellets everywhere, figure them out. As I've looked at it more, I, I, I've gone, no, I, I, I think there is a flow. And I think I see clearly the heart of an apostle that is overwhelmed by certain truths and is just, again, spilling it onto the page before he prays. That's his heart. And so I want to pull it together a little slowly, going back into verse 1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul. See, he doesn't say, I, Paul. He's saying, I, Paul. Like, how me? How, how, how this guy? Right? You, you go back to Paul, this guy, who would look and say, I was the guy that opposed the gospel of grace. I was the guy that opposed the church of Christ. I was the guy that, that attacked the body of Jesus who is his people. I took great joy and great pride in wiping this out. I, Paul now, have been changed. This is a source of great humility, which is why he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. See, Paul is not, in his mind, a prisoner of Rome. He's not a prisoner of circumstance. He's the prisoner of a sovereign God for Christ on behalf of others. And what he's saying is it's worth it. It's worth it. His perspective is, you know what? Yeah, my life isn't so simple. It's not so convenient. It's certainly not comfortable. I have a lot of enemies and few friends. And it is so worth it. I am so humbled to be a slave, a prisoner, the least of all. He's moved by that. These are not things that we brag about. There's not too many people that are going to brag on being a prisoner. Even today, no, nobody gets out of jail and says, yep. Serve time. Not unless they're looking to serve more time, all right? But Paul's so humbled by his calling that he's just like me, this reason I, Paul, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus on your, your behalf. But boy, that too is a blessing. And then he kind of goes into the sidebar. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Here's the thing about grace that Paul understands. Grace is given solely by God, but it's not solely for you. Catch that. 
Grace is given solely by God, but it is not solely for you. It is given to you for your benefit and to bless others. And so Paul knows that right there, right? Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, it was given to me for you. Not grace given to me for me, stop, cul-de-sac, end of story, I get grace to go to heaven and have a great relationship with God and it doesn't spill out. No, the whole idea is that grace is going to spill out. So Paul knows that he is saved by grace for purpose, not just saved by grace for salvation and that's it. He knows, man, there's more. And so he wants to make sure that they know that too. He says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, And he says, of how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. The revelation that came was when Jesus comes to Paul when Paul is going to kill Christians. And he says, Paul, you know what I know? You're against me. You resist me. You're glad that I was crucified. You want to wipe out my church. But I've got plans for you. I've got plans. I want to actually take you and change you and deploy you for a completely different context and where you took a lot of pride in your works, now you're not going to take any pride in your works and where you thought you were a commander of truth, now you're going to realize that, you know what, I'm the only true commander of truth and you will come under me. All of that happened at this revelation given to Paul through Christ. He says that revelation was this mystery made known. When he says mystery here, he's not talking about the secret of Christ. He's saying that Christ is the secret revealed. He's the secret revealed. And even though we're going to be able to look at this, and we're going to unpack what that, quote, mystery and secret is, again, there's nothing secretive about it. There's nothing in the truest sense of, of mystery as far as we can't comprehend it. But when we do see it and we do understand it, it's still dumbfounding to us. It should cause us to scratch our head say wow i get it but i don't get it i see it but how did i miss it just blows my mind in fact in this section paul is going to give seven dumbfounding truths right seven things that we should we should just step back and go wow why how why me who would have ever thought that one up Right? That, that's what this text should do for us. And so Paul's just going to spill them out, like I said, just these seven dumbfounding truths. And here's the first one that is, frankly, in my mind, probably one of the most dumbfounding of all in the entire Bible. First dumbfounding truth, God himself, God himself, showed up as our gospel grace to save us, so as to dwell in us and with us, as our servant God. Now that is long. That is like a Pauline run-on sentence done Matt Boswell style right there. I know that is a long statement and every ounce of it matters. Every ounce of it is true. And it is dumbfounding, this truth. Paul is going to start it off in verse 4 when he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now again, this isn't a mystery concealed. It's not a mystery for the elite or the learned that only certain people can understand it. It is revealed, but it is unbelievable. It is stunning in its scope and magnitude. That's that's what he means by the mystery of Christ. Again, it's just mind-blowing. How does this mystery unfold? What does it look like? Where does it start? Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, and that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
So the first part of this dumbfounded idea is that the great God of the universe that made everything with a mere word has no boundaries, no limit. He is an edgeless God. He is not housed by anything, chose to become a human being. Right? Took all of that immense power and housed it for a season. See, for Paul, this nice, good Jewish boy that sees God as a God that is not to be crafted in an image, have an idol made of, anything else, he sees this as completely mind-blowing. God becomes a person. That is a dumbfounding truth. But then you go a step deeper. It's not just that God became a person, but notice the kind of person that he became, Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this is that whole thing of our servant God. It's not just that God became a person, but then God became a certain type of person. God could have come and said, you know what, I'm a commanding king. I'm going to come with a decree, anybody that doesn't obey, I'm going to bust them at the knees, drop them in a hole, cover them with dirt, plant grass, call it done. I mean, God could have done that, right? God could, could have come as any commanding general, any mighty warrior. He could have come with any set of dispositions, but how does he come? As a slave, as a servant. He says, I will stoop below them all. You see this in the upper room just before communion. He says, I will wash their feet. He knows that every one of these guys are going to ditch him. He knows that one of these guys is going to betray him, and he washes their feet as a servant. Right? This is why Paul is so mesmerized. He goes, this is mysterious. Is this really how God would come to us as a servant? It's more than that says he was obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. And we look at that and we go, yeah, Jesus went to the cross. But again, realize what that really looked like. When Jesus goes to the cross, he served us so much. He said, I will absorb all of your offense, all of your suffering, all of your folly, all of your rebellion, all of your foolishness, all of your self-filled aspirations that don't include me. I will absorb all of that and I will suffer the wrath of God for all of that. And as I take all of your junk and all of your offense, I will give you all of my righteousness, every bit of it. I will give to you. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, who is God, made him who is Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, this is why Paul says, man, I'm scratching my head. God became a man. Man became a servant. God became a man, and in that became a servant. And then so much so that he went to a cross, and he took all of my junk, and he gave me all of his greatness. It's like uh, God comes, and he says, here, here Matt, here's your, here's your pile of everything. It's trash, it's just trash. But here's what I'm going to do. Here, here's all of my righteousness, all of my righteousness, unlimited righteousness, and I'll trade you. I'll give you all of my righteousness. I'll take all of your trash. That's the great exchange. Right? And this is why Paul says, man, this is a mystery to me, why God would do that. A mystery. 
Not only did he give us righteousness, but he gave us himself. And that's why in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. So think about the progression. God became man. God became servant to man. God became suffering servant to man. God became suffering servant to man by self-inflicting wrath for man's offenses, by placing the sinner inside himself. And he dies on the cross. Right? But through that, God bestowed righteousness in the place of offense. And then God bestowed self inside the sinner and made us saints. That whole picture for Paul is dumbfounding gospel grace. Just baffles and blows his mind. God would do that for me, for us, for the race. It's not a normal way to do things. We wouldn't do it that way. We wouldn't give ourselves like that. We wouldn't stoop that low for those who treat us poorly. Paul can see that and he says, I'm just dumbfounded. Dumbfounded. He says, that's the first truth. The second dumbfounding truth that just blows Paul away is that God's timing in gospel grace was intentional. It was intentional. And thus, by extension, God's timing is always perfect, regardless if we understand it, which is always the big key, right? I mean, we might even say, God's time's perfect. God's timing's always on time. But sometimes we don't understand it because we don't understand it. We sort of resist it. In fact, in Ephesians, going on, it says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, right? So here's the thing. Back in the Old Testament, there are hundreds of little pieces of Jesus as far as the one who was coming, right? Prophecies, uh, little typological ideas, little fulfillment promises. I mean, all of that, right? It's all there in the Old Testament. But up to the time of Christ, it was a little bit like having a thousand pieces without any directions. Any way to assemble the pieces. It would be like having a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, but no picture to really go by. How do I put this all together? Right? That's the problem, right? And so all the Old Testament people, they would write about things, but they didn't know what it meant. They didn't know how it was going to play out, everything else. But then the apostles and prophets, the Holy Spirit gives the directions to. He says, this is how it fits together. Right? So Genesis chapter 3, they all sinned, but then there's this seed that would bruise the serpent's head. And the apostles and prophets went, oh, that's the promise of Christ. That same promise given to Abraham, the seed that will bless the nations. Oh, that's Christ. And David's like Christ. And Moses is like Christ. And the list goes on and on and on. But they go, oh, we get it now. Christ is through the whole Old Testament. Nobody understood that, though, until the apostles and prophets had that revealed in the person of Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Now, the question in all of this that we ask sometimes is, man, why so long? I mean, if Adam and Eve rebelled back in Eden, why thousands of years of suffering and pain and blindness and darkness and oppression and all that? Why so long before God revealed this mystery to the world? Well, Paul has an answer for that in the book of Galatians. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the answer to the question, why so long, God would say, 
because it was time. Now, here's what you're doing right now. That doesn't satisfy me as an answer, right? You're like, no, 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 I, w- I want to know more. I know that, duh, it was the right time. I want a better answer, all right? Well, here's the better answer. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the hearts of men. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. The first answer is, it was time. The answer to, well, that isn't enough. I need more. God says, "Ah, well, that is on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. There's the other answer. Right? Which is frustrating for us, right? Because we're like, no, no, I need to know. I'm curious. It's a mystery. I want solved. And this is one of those mysteries that God says, you know what? I'm just not going to solve it for you. I'm not going to tell you because it's need to know. You don't need to know. Get comfortable with sometimes not knowing. If I take this a step deeper to help us understand, I would say that we are better off to believe the truths that reveal to us God's character. We're better to believe the truths that reveal to us God's character than to hold him hostage for answers that he chooses not to reveal. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Sometimes we go, well, why is there so much suffering in the world? And then we can't get an adequate answer, so we go, well, then you know what? That's not the God I want to worship. We hold him hostage until God gives me an answer I like. I'm going to hold him hostage because I don't like the answer. Or any other number of things. Why does he wait so long? Why is the second coming of Christ, the final coming of Christ, why do we have to wait so long? Why has it been 2,000 years and he's done nothing? Because there is a lot of suffering and disease and famine and war and pestilence and plague and hatred and bias. And Why does he wait? And God says, that's a need-to-know issue and you don't need to know. What you do need to know and what has been revealed to you is that God is good and loving and just and God is sovereign and in control and has a plan and this is an eternal plan. It was before the foundations of the world. It is guaranteed to wrap up just as he sees fit, as he sees fit, when he sees fit. And I go, all right, I'm going to trust then the character of God. He's just, good, holy, loving, right, merciful. Sometimes we go, yeah, I got that, but I want to know the answer to this thing right now. I think from that what it means is that we can really have two responses in the end. When we go, well, what about timing? And why did these things happen? Two responses. One's bad, one's good. The bad response is that we can look at that, timing, suffering, whatever, and we can say, well, the way of the Lord is not just, just like they did in Ezekiel 18. Right? His ways just aren't just. God isn't fair. God doesn't care. God isn't plugged in. God isn't aware. God isn't divvying out things. The bad guys win. The good guys lose. This isn't right. We can do all that and say, the way of the Lord is not just. And all we're going to get for that is God saying, oh, okay, my way's not just. Is it not your ways that are not just? In other words, we go, God, it's not fair. And then God will say, oh, now we're playing the fair game. All right, let's talk about fair. Look at what you guys do to each other. Look at how you handle one another. Even your closest relationships, you hurt them. Right? You are selfish and self-seeking and self-interested. And boy, that race is just tearing itself apart. And if I wouldn't intervene in common grace, you guys would have wiped each other out long ago. On top of the fact that because there is this rebellion to me, man, you are already in trouble. Let's not talk about fair. So our response says, well, the way of the Lord isn't just. God would say, well, all right, well, then you don't understand just. The other answer, the other response we can have in life It's what God said in Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We can just embrace that answer. Now I'll tell you the problem with that answer, we don't like that answer. 
right? I mean, honestly, like, you know, I'll, I'll have some frustration or be like, I don't know why. Why is it right now? Why didn't God do this? And then somebody will say to me, oh, well, you know, God says my ways aren't your ways. And I'll be like, shut up. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need that answer. I need an answer answer, right? Well, that's the answer. The problem is the answer is so simple, it irritates us, right? It's so simple, you could slap it on a bumper sticker and that's not satisfying. But that's the answer. His ways are just not our ways. His thoughts, they're not our thoughts. I don't always like that answer, but that is the answer. And so I can question God's timing and be angry or anxious over when he does or does not do things. But I would do a lot better to just take ownership of that, ownership of that truth. And with that, have the right disposition. What's the disposition? Psalm 27 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He says, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Instead of saying, why now? Why that? How come? We would do better to say, all right, God, I just want to wait on you. I want to be strong. I want to have courage. I want to do good. I don't want to give up in doing what is good because, again, I know there's reward. We are far better to pursue that than the, the philosophy of timing or the philosophy of justness under God. To bear under weight and be strong in him and seek him out. As I was looking at this this week, I was looking at my own life too, and I, I was just thinking about it like um, in... in 42 years, right, um, is there ever a time I could look and say, man, God's timing wasn't good? I mean, there was definitely hardship. There was definitely things where I was praying like crazy, like, please let this be done. I want this done now, right? I had an agenda. I had a perfect timetable that God could follow. Why he didn't, I don't know, right? I could always come up with the perfect flow chart and pie chart for God and me. I could do that. But as I reflected, I thought, man, was there ever a time in reflection where I go, yeah, that, that still could have went better this way if the timing would have been different. And I really concluded, you know what? No, all the timing was perfect. All the situations were just right. Now, that doesn't mean that he met my immediate need, right? He didn't. In fact, a lot of times, my immediate need uh, was run over. And I didn't receive what I was hoping. I didn't see the alleviation that I was praying for. So he didn't produce my need, but he produced in me a greater need, which is the refinement of my character, right? He knew that if I rescue Matt right now, this won't develop the kind of patience he needs. If I rescue Matt right now, this will not build in him a greater intensity toward prayer. If I rescue him right now, he will treat it as a trivial thing because I just rescued his butt again from some problem and he won't truly be grateful. He'll just be like, oh, that's what God's here for, to just drop stuff from the sky like he's a divine pinata that I beat with my prayer stick, right? All of that. It's what we do, right? Come on, I want my thing now. That's a freebie for showing up, all right? So... But that's the challenge, to realize that God's timing is perfect because he's perfectly building in you something. He's beating out of you sometimes something. He's shaping in you his character. And so his timing is always perfect. Paul looks at all of that and he says, you know what that is? That is dumbfounding gospel grace. It's dumbfounding. He's not the only one. He's got a third dumbfounding truth. That third truth is that God's gospel grace is not moved by our heritage or our accomplishment. 
It is not moved by our heritage. Was I born Jewish? Was I born a Gentile? Whatever. Was I born into a rich family, poor family? And it's not by my accomplishments, right? And I'll tell you what, this is a hard thing for our world. Because in our world, we love accomplishment, we love pedigree, we love achievement. It matters for everything. Think about it as parents. If your child does really well in school, and they graduate high in their class, and they get a bunch of scholarships, you are proud and you are bragging. If your kid drops out their sophomore year, you're embarrassed and you don't want to talk about it. Because achievement, ah, oh, achievement's everything in this world. We celebrate earned reward, whatever it is, right? Top of your class, best at your game, highest in your job, whatever. We celebrate earned achievement. You know what we can't stand, even though we do it? We can't stand little kids' soccer where everybody gets a trophy for showing up in cleats, right? We can't stand that. We're like, oh, wow, congratulations. You can put your shorts on. It could even be backwards. As long as you hit the field in cleats, here's your trophy, right? Here's the problem. But you look at it and go, oh, eh, come on, man. When they get older, then it's competition. That's achievement again. They earn reward. But when it comes to the gospel, you know what that is? Here's your trophy. <laughs> Welcome to Pee Wee Soccer, right? That's us. We don't do anything to earn this trophy of salvation earned by Christ for us. We do nothing to earn it. And so Paul knows this when he says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I mean, this is the thing where he goes, man, this is the crazy nature of grace. Whether you were really obedient or disobedient, whether you were raised under Jewish law or you were raised under a pagan idol, whether you have done all kinds of moral battle damage to your life or you've been running straight and firm, no matter what, grace saves all the same. Under the same conditions, it does not go, oh, well, you've worked harder, you get grace. Or you've worked less, you get grace. It's you just get grace because apart from grace, you don't get anything, no matter how hard you try. Sometimes what I find is that grace is so radical, even in the church, we don't know what to do with it. So we celebrate it, but then we're cautious to extend it, right? Or we preach it, but then we immediately condition it. You know, oh, we are saved by grace. But that doesn't mean you can go wild. Right? We remind people of it. But then we remind people don't to, not to abuse it. Right? So we do this kind of like, yes, all of grace, but don't be foolish. Yes, all of grace, but some of your works really matter. It's not that you're saved by works, but you better work after you're saved. You're, Uh-oh, dun-dun-dun. Right? Like, we get confused. We're like schizophrenic with grace. But this is a great reminder it reminds us of what Paul said earlier in Ephesians when he said, you are saved by grace, not of yourselves, lest you boast. You are saved by grace, not of yourselves, lest you boast. The most dumbfounding thing for Paul to embrace is that God's grace is so radical, it only accounts Christ to your account and not your action or lack of action. That just blows him away, blows me away. I look and I go, no, 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 I almost want to correct it. No, 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 that's not true. That can be true. In the saving column, that's absolutely true. Because you are in Christ, all of Christ counts for you. That's it. 
And Paul looks at that and says, that is dumbfounding gospel grace. Dumbfounding. He's got a fourth truth. Blows his mind. And that is that God's gospel grace can transform the worst of people for the greatest of purposes. God's gospel grace can transform literally the worst of people for the greatest of purposes. Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister, or literally a servant, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Notice the transformational words there, right? Notice, he was made according to the gift by the working of God, right? No place does Paul say, here's where I take credit. I was saved and then I worked hard. I was saved and then I was disciplined. He doesn't take any credit. He says, man, all of this was God's work in me. All of it. Now, he knows there's a place for personal discipline in his life. He's going to celebrate that and remind of that in 1 Corinthians 9. But more importantly, Paul knows that a life of self-discipline, apart from daily proximity to God, is empty and vain and runs out. He knows that, matter of factly, because Paul was a very disciplined guy before Christ. Paul wasn't like, oh man, I'm out of control, I'm all wild, I need discipline, I need God. No, Paul would say, I was very disciplined before God, I was very in control, I was very tenacious, I was very focused. But I wasn't driven by grace. I wasn't transformed, I was just conforming. Transformation comes through the presence of God, not just bite down, do the right thing every time and call it done. Paul knows that. He goes on to say, to me, and again, he's at this point, i got to imagine Paul is emotional, tearful, when he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul sees himself as the absolute least of all Christians, the least. And he doesn't say this in false humility. He doesn't say this because, again, it's going to write well and sound good to the Ephesians. Paul legitimately believes this. He says, you know what? I am the least if you're counting good people. I am the least if you're asking for a a, a list uh, from one to billions best Christians. I'm on the bottom of the list for best Christians. He says, there's only one time I'm ever the greatest of anything. 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to a service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent. I hated Jesus, hated his church, I take great joy, I loved destroying it, that was my thing. He says, but then I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord flowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am chief. Paul says, if you want to put me on the top of the list, put me on the top of the list for sinners. You want to put me on the bottom of the list, put me on the bottom of the list for the best saints that have ever lived. See, Paul understands And I love this because he doesn't wallow in his past failures or self-pity. He doesn't say, oh man, I killed Christians, I hated the church, I can't move forward. That's that's a whole different level of pride. Self-pity is pride. He he knows that too, so he just moves forward in gratitude. 
He knows he was saved for a purpose by grace. He doesn't sit around complaining or wallowing in what he failed to do. He simply does what God has called him to do. And that is no different than our lives. No different than our lives at all. Right? Go back to chapter 2. What did it say? Say, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were walking the course of this world. We were fulfilling the desires of our body and mind. And we were children of wrath. It's what we were before the gospel. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated him uh, with us or what with us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Right. So we go from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high in Christ so that we are saved for purpose. He can take the worst of people. Some of us may have done some really bad things and foolish things and hurt people in the process and we didn't apologize and we made things wrong, whatever else, and God says, no, but in my grace, I can still deploy you and use you. Just as I did Paul. Just as I did this fisherman that denied me. Paul would look at all of that and say, you know what? That is some dumbfounding gospel grace. That God can use the worst for some of the greatest of things. It's got another dumbfounding truth, the fifth. This fifth truth is that God's gospel grace creates the church to teach the supernatural world. It's a weird little one he throws in here, right? It's like a strange little additive, but it's cool. He says in verse 9, all of this was to also bring to light for everyone was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, uh, here's the deal, man. Like in the Old Testament, um, we note how nobody quite knew what was going on, right? The pieces were all floating. Nobody could pull them together to understand the nature of Christ's coming and being the gospel. Well, in the same vein, the angelic world, and when I use that word angelic or angels, I'm talking both about holy angels and fallen angels, which we call demons, both categories, right, are hyper-confused by the plan. According to the Bible, they don't fully understand the plan, right? So like in 1 Peter chapter 1, during the whole Old Testament period, Peter writes about how the good angels looked into the unfolding plan with wonder, right? So like, we don't know what's going on. We know that Father, Son, and Spirit, they spend a lot of time in meetings together. They don't bring us into the huddle, Right? Something's going down, there's this plan, uh, we're watching it unfold in the Old Testament, we don't know what it means or where it's going, and then Christ comes into the world, right? and all the angels show up as the armies of heaven, it says, right? and they proclaim, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But when they do that, they're not looking at that baby born, thinking he's going to grow up, he's going to be a servant, he's going to be beaten, mocked, crucified, left for dead, and abandoned by friends. They're not thinking that. They're thinking, all right, this is the one that rules with a rod of iron. This is the one that's going to wipe out the enemies. He's going to unify the world through force. That's the only plan they could envision from what little bit that they would know. So they're looking at it all in full going, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And the demonic world had the same dilemma. They didn't know what was going on, which is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, if the demonic world understood that crucifying Christ would be, be their demise, they never would have done it. If they understood that when Christ was crucified, so too was their authority, had Satan known that in crucifying Christ, he would be driven out of his place of power, he would have never done it. He didn't know that. He's like, oh man, we get rid of Jesus, I own the planet, game over. 
Because it was such a crazy idea. God becomes man. God becomes servant. God becomes a servant so profound, he's killed by men. It was so crazy and radical and off the charts that no angel dare even think of such a crazy thing. But in that revelation, man, the angels began to learn, and they continue to learn, right? Not just through those events, but through the church. They look at the church, and they learn from us. How do they learn from us? Two things. First, the church, by its mere existence, proclaims the victory of God over Satan, sin, and death, right? It's like, as soon as an angel wants to know, man, has Satan been defeated? Jesus says, just look at my church. Look at my church. Look at the chains of death that are gone. Look at the chains of sin that are changed. Uh, right? They, they went from chains that latched them to evil to now they're bound to me. And good and in grace. Shows that God is victorious. The church also, by its continuing maturity, d- displays the power of God. Because again, you think about us. We were a group of people, sinful, selfish, biased We had different backgrounds and different dispositions and different agendas and all of that, and God can house us all into one church? I mean, how does that happen? I mean, we're a pretty diverse group of people, and God brings us all together in one. That teaches the angels about God's grace, God's plan, God's unity, God's love. And Paul would look at that and say, you know what, that's some dumbfounding gospel grace that we lowly human beings teach the angelic world, and one day we will judge the angelic world, Paul says. I don't know what that means. But it's founded in this truth. That is some dumbfounding gospel grace. The sixth dumbfounding truth is that God's gospel grace grants unrestricted access via unconditional acceptance. Unrestricted access via unconditional acceptance. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now notice, it's always been the plan, right? The cross, all of that, it's not a reaction. It's the action revealed. That's what we see here. But from that action revealed, it means that we as creatures have unrestricted access to our creator, right? We can be bound to him in oneness and close with him in every conceivable way. So the question becomes, man, do we actually take advantage of the access we have? Because we have profound access. Here's the thing. Here's what you don't have to do. You don't have to hop on a plane and fly to Jerusalem to go to the Temple Mount to worship God. You don't have to do that. You don't have to go to the Sinai Peninsula and, and, and go find a big mountain and, and, and find the right one and go there to interact with God. Right? There's this scene with Jesus and this woman at the well where he tells the woman, you know what, man, things are changing. Because she says, well, you Jews, you have to go to the temple, and we Gentiles, we, we have to go to the mountain. And Jesus says, oh, man, there's a time coming where wherever you stand is holy ground. Wherever you're at will become sacred space for you will be a sacred vessel and you will come together with, other, with others to be a sacred gathering. See, Paul would look at that and say, man, because we have this access with confidence through faith in our Lord, because we're one with him and Jesus is with the Father, we can always go there. All of that for Paul was dumbfounding gospel grace. He just couldn't believe it. After a life of ritual and routine and how he can just go to God baffles him. And then there's a final dumbfounding truth. This is the toughest one for us sometimes. And that is that God's gospel grace, it results in suffering in this world. 
Isn't that weird? Grace results in suffering. And suffering for gospel grace will produce the greatest joy and the richest reward. It will. See, this is hard because we run from suffering as a culture. As parents, we rescue our kids from suffering a lot. Even more and more nowadays, parents are rescuing their kids from suffering. It's making us weaker as a people in a lot of ways because, again, we don't want to suffer. But see, Paul understood and embraced suffering differently. Verse 13, he says, So I ask that you do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I mean, I love this because, again, Paul, Paul knew what suffering would produce. Paul was not anti-suffering. Paul was, was like, I'm going to take this suffering and I'm going to see it leverage for the most important things in my life to develop things that really, truly matter. Because Paul knows, man, if I want to forgo suffering, it's really easy. I just back off of my loyalties to God. A lot of the suffering goes away because a lot of his suffering was standing up for Christ. But he told young Timothy, he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted he says that's just a promise the more you live for god the more you live out loud for god the more you're going to face persecution the more you advance the cause of grace oddly enough the more you will be persecuted the question is what do you do when you're persecuted well jesus told us he says blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven for they also did this to the fathers who were the prophets before you i mean this whole thing is really bizarre because he says ah oh, man what do you do when you're persecuted ah oh, he says ah oh, that's where there's happiness you go, huh he says that's where there's happiness man take joy when people say man uh, you're you're too much of a Bible thumper. Don't come to this thing. When people say, ah, we're just going to steer clear of you. When people say, oh, what you believe is evil. And I, I told this in the last service. I, I want you to know for the first time ever in my life, I am not one that ever says stuff like this, but I'm saying it now. Uh, just so you know, if you're a Christian and you believe this Bible and you believe certain verses in this Bible, there's coming a day sooner than later where you will actually see persecuted, persecution for your beliefs. You will because what you're going to be uh, accused of is being a bigot you're going to be a bigot that is equal to being like a racist. It's going to be like, you're, you're the new white supremacist. Because the world's going to say, you're such a bigot, you're so biased, you're so, you're, you're so closed-minded, you're so hateful. You're not welcome at certain things. Your perspective is too archaic and too uh, cruel. I guarantee you that day is coming. I guarantee it. So what would Jesus say? Would Jesus say, all right, so get rid of the potential for, for persecution? Change the conditions so you're not persecuted? He said, no, no, no. When that day comes, what do you do? Rejoice. Leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven. Paul just knew. Now what if it isn't persecution? What if it's just general suffering? What do you do in the face of general suffering? James chapter 1. Count it all joy. Like, oh. I thought I was going to hear complain. No. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here's the deal. Ready? I'm going to give you the truth about suffering. Very simple. Very simple truth. Suffering will do one of two things in your life guaranteed. Ready? It will either make you better or worse. That is it. 
That is how simple suffering is. It'll either make you better or it'll make you worse depending on how you face it. So if you begin to suffer for any number of reasons, somebody did something to you, you did something that has consequences, the world just hates you for whatever reason, and you begin to suffer, if you start to grow with anxiety, bitterness, frustration, you go, that's not fair, I have rights, I have rules, I had a plan, they're no fun, they're mean to me, list goes on and on and on, I didn't plan it this way, who's in charge, all that stuff. The more you do all of that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to become bitter, 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 bitter. You're going to be a victim. You're going to struggle with joy. You're not going to enjoy the little things. You're just going to be frustrated, right? Because you fixate on the negative, and it will make you a worse you. But in suffering, if you go, no, I'm going to count it all joy. I'm going to let this shape stuff in me. It's going to build my character. No, it's not easy, but I'm going to pray it out, walk it out. I'm going to obey no matter what. Man, that will build a better you, especially as you do that through him. See, Paul understood this, and at the close of his life, he could tell another young pastor that, man, it works. He says to Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded. Be aware of your surroundings. Endure suffering, he says. Not in bitter endurance, but in joyful endurance. Endure suffering. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I have been beaten, stabbed in the back, abandoned my friends, thrown in prison multiple times. I had people throw a bunch of rocks at me until they thought I was dead, and they tossed me out of the city. I have been poured out as a drink offering, and now the time of my departures come. Literally, I'm going to be beheaded soon. Man, he has suffered. He says, but I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, and henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul knew that suffering has eternal potential. Eternal potential. So treat it like it does. Act like suffering has potential. React like it does. Obey like it does. Hope like it does. Pray like it does. So that one day people will look at your life and they'll see your reaction to suffering. And you know what they're going to say? That is some dumbfounding gospel grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word, for your grace and for your wisdom. In your name, amen.